Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 28, The Olympic Orator. Who is Gregory of Nazianzus? Happy New Year, listeners. I hope you all have had a very good beginning to 2024 so far, and I'm excited to continue our epic Nicene saga with you. Who knows, if I can limit my enthusiasm, maybe we'll actually be able to get through the whole story this year. Now, as you have known, for some time, there was a third Cappadocian father that we have yet to cover, the legendary Gregory of Nazianzus. Known in Eastern Orthodoxy as Gregory the Theologian, for centuries Gregory has set the standard of what is considered to be solid, faithful thinking in that communion. He is also one of the figures about whom we know the most, for he wrote an autobiographical poem in which he describes his life in extraordinary detail, detail rivaled only by Augustine of Hippo's Confessions. And where Augustine was the unrivaled master of Latin style, Gregory was the unrivaled master of Greek. His work single-handedly set the stage for the Byzantine literary culture that came after him and would flourish all throughout the time we know of as the Middle Ages. But just who is this legendarily loquacious linguist, this stalwart saint of sensational sagacity, this author of autobiography and angelic analysis? Who is Gregory of Nazianzus? Well, first, an important note. For the past couple of months, we have, of course, been talking about Gregory of Nyssa. During that time, I have referenced the Nissan simply as Gregory, and whenever Gregory of Nazianzus came up in that story, I referred to him as the Nazianzan. Now, I'm going to switch that up. Since Gregory of Nazianzus is the main character, now he is simply going to be Gregory. And when Gregory of Nyssa comes up, he will be, well, Gregory of Nyssa. I know it's not ideal to have to switch around like this, but it's the only way to run this podcast without me having to say and you having to hear the word Nazianzus approximately 800 million times. Now it'll only be more like 8 million times. Much better. And, unfortunately, these are not the only two Gregories in this story. For Gregory of Nazianzus was the son of a man who was, alas, also named Gregory. It's the curse of Nicene history. Too many people named Eusebius, and way too many people named Gregory. So, this one is going to be Gregory the Elder in our story. Well, actually, he's going to be Gregory's dad most of the time. I'm going to follow the kids' rules, where your friend's parents don't have actual names, you know? They're just like Katie's mom, or Kevin's dad, or Pip's mysterious patron. That seems like the best way to keep them apart. But when I can't manage to get away with calling him Gregory's dad, he'll be Gregory the Elder. So with that out of the way, let's ask the question of who was Gregory? Who were his parents? Now, Gregory's mother was a very pious, very old Christian stock. Gregory's father, however, was not. He was a member of a since-vanished religious order called the Hypsisterians. Now, who were the Hypsisterians? Good question. No, I, I, I mean, that's a really good question. I'm not being rhetorical, because nobody really knows who they were. 
We know they were a monotheistic sect that appeared to take some elements from Judaism. They kept the Sabbath and they ate a kosher diet, but they didn't take on everything, so they didn't practice circumcision, for example. Now, you may think that these folks sound a lot like early Gentile Christians, and you'd be right. But they weren't considered Christians, either by themselves or by anybody else. And it appears they had separate temples that were dedicated to a single god that they referred to as the Most High. Now, regardless of the details of this group, we know that Gregory's maternal grandparents decided this just wouldn't do. I mean, what were they going to do? Tell their Christian friends that their nice Christian daughter had married a hip cesarean? I mean, how do you even say that word? It's one of those words that gets harder every time you say it. Try it. Hip cesarean. Hip cesarean. Hip Okay, well, you get the point. The point is that Gregory's father converted to Christianity when he married Gregory's mother, and he rose to some prominence. In fact, he became the bishop of the town of Nazianzus, where the family lived. It might surprise you to learn that a convert could rise to such heights so quickly in the church at this time. But there is at least one fairly simple explanation for this fact, which is that Gregory's parents were loaded. The family were basically the big aristocrats in town, and in a relatively small town like Nazianzus, that meant they were in charge of pretty much everything. They employed the other residents of the town in running their estate. They were responsible for the town's taxes that had to get paid to the empire. And in matters of religion, the family paid for the construction of the local church, where Gregory the Elder functioned as the local bishop. Now, Gregory's aristocratic background would be hugely important in his life. He took on all the important responsibilities that his parents shouldered in society, and also the many privileges that their rank afforded them. You see, Gregory was deeply impacted by the classical model of the Greco-Roman aristocrat. He would carry those expectations, both of his obligations and others' obligations to him through his whole life. And why wouldn't he? For the expectations of the aristocrat shaped his whole life, starting with his education. Once he was of appropriate age, Gregory was shipped off to travel throughout the empire, studying and learning all of the things that a 4th century gentleman was supposed to know. He began his studies in Caesarea, where he encountered the writings of Origen of Alexandria. Origen was to be, for Gregory as for so many others, a lifelong teacher and theological inspiration. After Caesarea, Gregory hopped over to Alexandria before heading to the big educational center in the east, Athens. Athens was the home of many of the greatest teachers of the age, especially in the arts of literature and rhetoric. It was there that Gregory would learn the skills that would equip him for any career his brilliant young mind set itself to. There was one hitch, though. Gregory had to get to Athens first. Travel across the Mediterranean was normally pretty calm, but storms could still appear with alarming rapidity and smash a ship to pieces. And this is what happened. While Gregory was at sea, his ship was caught in a storm for 20 long days. Now that is a pretty long time for anybody to be stuck in a storm, especially when you are stuck in a 4th century Mediterranean boat. Even the most experienced sailors on the vessel began to succumb to terror. 
Eventually, they exhausted everything they could do to stabilize the ship in the storm, all to no avail, and they turned to prayer. Even the most avowedly non-religious of the crew began to pray to Jesus for deliverance. But most exhausted and terrified of all was poor Gregory. Now, he was not a child at this point. He probably would have been in his late teens or early 20s, but he had never experienced trauma and terror on this scale before. So after the storm passed, everybody else got up, thanked God for answering their prayers, and got on with their day. Not Gregory, though. He remained prone on the floor of the ship, garments torn in terror, praying to God for safety, and pledging his life to God's service, if only God would keep him safe, until he got to Athens. It's hard not to be moved by Gregory's genuine terror at the danger around him. It's even harder to be unmoved when you learn the next element of the story. Apparently, in the middle of the storm, one of Gregory's servants had a vision in which Gregory's beloved mother had appeared through the mists and rain and dragged the boat to safety on the shore single-handedly. Now, this is a very interesting detail. It seems to parallel the role that Athena plays in the Odyssey, where that goddess single-handedly rescues Odysseus from a very similar situation. Which might make you think that Gregory of Nazianzus is embellishing the story here. When he writes about it, he's using all of his literary training to cast his mother in a Greek goddess-like mold. Yet the story apparently passed into the family legends that they all told around the dinner table. And it appears that Gregory's mother actually had some kind of premonition, some kind of dream about the storm, about around the time that Gregory was undergoing it. On the other hand, you might say that this very moving, very auspicious story is kind of burying the lead. Because didn't Gregory say something about, you know, dedicating his life to God if he survives? Like, what about that? Is that important? Is Gregory going to follow through with that? Well, the answer is yes. He did have that experience, and he did take it very, very seriously. Gregory would toy around with various forms of commitment to God, but he would take his Christian piety very seriously for the rest of his life. This was his conversion moment. Now, you may notice that this makes the Cappadocians three for three on dramatic commitments to God and the Church. Basil abandoned his career in rhetoric after either experiencing monastic life or after getting a talking to from Macrina, depending on how we trace it. Gregory of Nyssa had that scary dream where his martyr ancestors yelled at him for not being pious enough. And now our Gregory almost lost his life at sea and pledged it to God when it was saved. Now, there's a lot we could say about these experiences, and there's a lot to reflect on there, but one has to suspect that they are part of the Cappadocians' rock-solid commitment to the Christian faith as they understood it. Well, near-death experience behind him, Gregory arrived in Athens for what would be some of the most formative years of his young life. Gregory would tear through his studies with a veracity and aptitude that few have shared before or since. His talent in all of the arts was obvious, but he was particularly skilled in the art of rhetoric. Now, as a reminder, the ancient art of rhetoric was broader than what we think of today. Rhetoric included all facets of the art of persuasion, of speaking so that somebody else would change their thinking and behavior, which meant that trained rhetors were in high demand in legal settings, in government, in philosophy and education, in public debate, and even in the church. 
you could do just about anything you wanted if you were good at rhetoric. And Gregory was very, very good at rhetoric. If you can't believe it, though, Gregory's future promise was only the second most important thing about his time in Athens. The first was the people he met. Gregory studied in Athens at the same time as several other important people. You've already met the most important one, Julian the not-quite-yet-apostate, because Constantius was still on the throne at this time, and he was Christian, and he had also had all of Julian's family killed, so, you know, Julian was laying low on his skepticism of Christianity for a while longer. Gregory and Julian were never friends, but Gregory reports meeting the future emperor and being deeply distressed by his awfulness. He was just the worst. Awful, awful, awful. Gregory will later talk about how awful Julian was, and how, even as a student, he was so distressed by the evil that the Roman Empire was nourishing in the heart of this young prince. No doubt Gregory stayed up late many nights thinking about just how bad Julian was. And what did Julian think of Gregory? I don't think about you at all. Seriously. Julian makes no comment ever about Gregory's invective. Julian never even bothered to respond when he was emperor and Gregory was writing this stuff against him. There's no reason to think that Julian was particularly aware of who Gregory was. They studied in the same school, but were not in the same class. And as emperor, Julian would have run with a far more elite crowd. Gregory was an aristocrat, sure, but he was an aristocrat from a backwater province close to the edge of the empire. I mean, sure, Julian may have heard of Gregory, in the way that you may have heard of that guy you went to high school with who hacked the school district database and erased everybody's letter grades right before finals so that the school corporation had to bump everybody's grades up by 10% your senior year when everybody had senioritis and their grades were slipping anyway. Or, like the gal who was so mad that the school only let you have two ketchup packets per lunch, that she got her whole class to bring their own ketchup bottles and take the two packets anyway, and then they stored them up, and on graduation day they pulled all the packets out of their robes and threw them up into the air and charged for the exit, heels and loafers and dress shoes smashing the packets into red ketchupy pulps all over the gym floor, while their evil principal screamed, STOP THEM! STOP THEM! as froth emerged from his mouth and his minions charged after the far nimbler high school seniors. Or like that guy who always kind of creeped you out and once got in trouble in middle school because he straight up walked out of school just because he was bored and tried to walk home, and then you saw his face in the paper years later because he was doing 20 years in prison for some kind of truck robbery murder scheme? I had a weird school experience, you guys. I think I've lost the point. Oh yeah, right, the point. Julian probably didn't really know who Gregory was. But one person who did know who Gregory was would become very close to him. So close, in fact, that it would shape the trajectories of the two men for the rest of their earthly lives. That man was Basil, or as we have already come to know him, Basil the Great. It's easy to see why Basil and Gregory got along so well. Two young men about the same age, from the same scorned province of the empire, both passionately committed to their Christian faith. The two of them fell in with a larger group of Christian students who gathered to pray, socialize, and study. Gregory's awe of Basil is evident when he talks about this period of his life. 
as is the intensity of their friendship. So intense that occasionally Gregory stops to remind us that it is just a friendship and nothing more. Definitely not anything romantic about it, no sir. Now, straight men who are comfortable with their friendships do not, as a rule, pause in the middle of telling you about them just to insist that it was just a friendship, that there was nothing gay about it. There are a couple of possibilities as to why Gregory is doing this. The first, and probably the more likely, is that Gregory's enemies knew of his close relationship with Basil and spread rumors of a homosexual relationship to embarrass him. The second possibility is that Gregory was just not a full zero on the Kinsey scale, and Basil had indeed stirred something in him. Whatever the case, it was clear that Gregory was devoted to Basil and valued his friendship highly, which only made it hurt all the more when Basil decided to leave his studies. Some students, Gregory among them, begged Basil to stay, but Basil ultimately refused. Gregory had thought about going along with him, but eventually the other friends convinced Gregory to stay. Now, personally, this was heartbreaking. Basil was so incredibly important to Gregory, and now he had chosen a path that Gregory would not follow. Symbolically, though, it's almost hard to see how the choices could have been otherwise. Basil didn't reject the cultural and educational lineage of pagan Athens altogether, but he was pretty skeptical of its use in the church. Remember, he liked to reform things for Christian aims. Gregory, on the other hand, wanted to fuse the best of that pagan literary style and academic excellence with the church. And so the former left Athens to study under a charismatic bishop ascetic. The latter stayed to complete his training in those ancient arts. What could be more poetic? But Gregory would not stay in Athens forever. He, too, would come to feel the city had served its purpose. He returned home to his family estate in Cappadocia, where his father was a bishop, and then proceeded to do... nothing. Well, okay, not nothing. He was reading and writing and experimenting with his own forms of ascetical practice. But in his dad's eyes, this amounted to nothing. Like so many fathers of so many times, he thought his son needed to stop messing around and get a job, something that would pay the bills. But Gregory refused to do this because, Dad, you don't understand. I'm like trying to figure myself out, you know? I'm, I'm thinking about God and church and stuff. This is really important. I don't have time to be tied down to a job. The Road to Nicaea, now brought to you by going out and getting a job. I mean, how long can you just sit in the back and contemplate, Greg? Running this place isn't cheap, you know. I know, I know, you need your time and space to write. Maybe if you just went to Menards and dropped off an application, you could do it part-time and... No, 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 I'm not saying you need to do it forever. I know it's not your dream job, but if you could just get... Well, fine, be that way. But if you can't make this month's rent, don't come crying to your mother and me. Getting a job, making your wallet fuller and your family table emptier since the mid-300s A.D. As usually happens when this conflict is happening and the son is living under the father's roof, dad won. He won by demanding that his son accept ordination to the priesthood. Now, this is a really interesting thing to do, and it shows the way that family and church politics could intertwine. 
As Gregory's father, he could importune his son, but he couldn't force him to do anything. As Gregory's bishop, though, he had the right to order someone to be ordained, and they were expected to accept. The message was clear. If you won't put that fancy rhetorical training to use in government or law or teaching, then you'll at least put it to use in the family business and help me run this church, and I can force you to do it. But sons of all times and places have had a last resort when fathers push too far, running away from home. And that is exactly what Gregory did. He got ordained just like his bishop had ordered him to, and then, before he even preached his first sermon, he left home on a long ascetical retreat with a bunch of his monk friends, led by who else? His old buddy Basil the Great. Yes, it just so happened that Gregory was ordained right in the middle of Basil's experiments with ascetical community, and it made the perfect excuse for getting away from pastoral ministry. Gregory of Nazianzus was the master of many things. Of poetry, of theology, of all the subjects of a classical education. He was also the master of petty, passive aggression. Oh, sorry, Dad, I mean Bishop. I would love to help you run the family church, but these monks are just begging me to come and live with them. You know how it is. I need to pray. Priests need to pray. Oh, you'll understand. I've, I've just got to go off and do this for a while. Sorry. But fate had other plans for this passive-aggressive priest. Plans that would give him much more capacity for sassy one-liners than a monastic life ever would. After a while hanging around with his monk pals and avoiding his responsibilities, Gregory was persuaded, at least partly by Basil, to return back to his father. And he had the perfect excuse to do so, for Gregory received word that his father may have committed some light heresy. Apparently, his dad had signed off on some declaration of faith that was considered by the community to be Arian in its leanings. We aren't actually sure what declaration it was that he signed. This kerfuffle occurs sometime in late 361 or 362, so it might be the proceedings of one of those Homoian councils that Constantius had been so eagerly calling. But whatever the case, we know that a number of people in the congregation, and most of the local monks, were now declaring themselves to be no longer in communion with Gregory the Elder, who had outed himself as a dirty, dirty heretic. This was a big problem. Resolving it would take someone with undeniable skills and persuasion, solid orthodox credentials, and ascetical street cred with the charismatic monks. In other words, it would take someone exactly like Gregory of Nazianzus. So Gregory returned home to clean up the family mess. But before he could get his father out of trouble, he had to get himself out of trouble. Specifically, the trouble that he had, you know, run away from the church he was supposed to be serving. Master orator that he was, Gregory returned to his church on Easter Sunday and proclaimed that they should all forgive each other on this holy day because Christ was risen. And I quote, Brothers, let us forgive all offenses for the resurrection's sake. Let us give one another pardon. I, for the noble tyranny which I have suffered, for now I can call it noble, and you who exercised it, if you had any cause to criticize my reluctance. End quote. I love this bit. 
Make no mistake, it is elegant and well-crafted, especially in Gregory's native Greek. And like all truly excellent speeches, it manages to say the awkward and potentially offensive truth in a really delightful way. Because Gregory is essentially saying, hey, 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 yeah, yeah, so I totally did run away for like five months after y'all ordained me, and that's my bad. But on the other hand, I didn't want to be ordained, and you all stood there and watched it happen and didn't really help me out, which isn't very nice either, but hey, you know what? Christ is risen, so let's call the whole thing off and start fresh. What do you say? It's a difficult argument to make to the people who have been expecting your pastoral care for the last five months and not getting it. But Gregory pulled it off and began working in the church to heal the split that his father had caused. His main argument, and really the only one that was open to him in this situation, was that his dad hadn't realized what he was signing because he was too theologically incompetent to realize it was heretical. His father's intentions were perfectly orthodox. He had just signed off on the wrong document. Now, as you can imagine, this argument is a bit of a tightrope to walk. Uniting the diocese under a bishop by telling them that the bishop was too dumb to realize they were being a heretic is uh, not an easy sell. It's an even harder sell when the bishop is your dad, your boss, and the richest man and single largest employer in town. But Gregory didn't really have another option. His father had signed the heretical confession without any compulsion. Gregory couldn't argue his dad was duped or pressured or even misled. He could only say that the right reverend father had misunderstood. Once again, he pulled off this daunting rhetorical challenge, and the divisions began to heal. Even greater challenges were soon to arise, though, and they all had to do with Basil. For as Gregory worked alongside his father, Basil was rising through the ecclesiastical ranks in Caesarea. But Basil was not universally liked in Caesarea, in part because he was so supportive of the homoousian pro-Nicene position. Basil's bishop in particular was not comfortable with that or with the charisma that his cleric was demonstrating. And to top it all off, the anti-Nicene Emperor Valens had just been crowned and was on the move to Caesarea, where he expected to hold a series of public debates between pro- and anti-Nicene factions in which he and his appointees would judge the orthodoxies of those speaking. It's all of the crises coming together. You would almost expect it to happen in a teen drama and for Basil to shout, And the prom is tomorrow! And I still don't have a date! to top it all off. To solve these many problems, Basil and Gregory would join forces again, showing up in Caesarea to defeat the emperor's chosen speakers in oratorical contests and win imperial approval. This was very good news for everyone, but especially for the bishop of Caesarea, who, God love him, could not theologize his way out of John 3.16 if he tried. He would have been an absolute disaster if he had had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the trained imperial rhetors. Because Gregory stood in for him, the bishop's keister was metaphorically saved from imperial scrutiny. With the bishop firmly in his debt, Gregory began to use his influence to rehabilitate Basil's standing with his boss. And he succeeded. Gregory's unwavering support was a big reason why Basil became the next bishop of Caesarea. And that is where the trouble began.
You already know what happened next. Basil's newfound authority to push the Nicene cause was cut off at the knees when Valens split the province of Caesarea in two, drastically limiting Basil's sphere of influence. To compensate, Basil began to create new dioceses and staff them with priests and bishops who would be faithful to the Nicene cause and loyal to him. Basil asked Gregory to be one such bishop. Gregory said no. Then Basil pulled some strings and pressured Gregory's father to make Gregory a bishop, and Gregory's father agreed. Basil and the elder Gregory visited Gregory of Nazianzus and persuaded him to take up his rightful place in the episcopate. For at least a minute, Gregory agreed. Not that he had much choice in the matter. Basil was his metropolitan bishop. His father was his local bishop and boss. Their command that he take up the office was not something that canonically could be disobeyed. He had to do it. And perhaps Gregory was even optimistic about it for a minute. But only for a minute, because he will describe the ordination as forced, and his very first sermon as a bishop criticizes Basil and his father for pressuring him into the job. And before you ask, yes, the two of them were sitting in the church that day when he gave this sermon. He also got in a few subtle digs at Basil over a big point of theological difference between them, the divinity of the Spirit. You'll remember that throughout his long career, Basil never used the word homoousius to describe the relationship between the Spirit and the Father. Basil also spent a lot of his early theological years training with the homoousians, who were as a whole more skeptical about the full divinity of the Spirit than the Son. Now, some of Basil's reticence here was probably political savvy. It was designed not to alienate sympathetic homoousians from the Nicene cause. That's one of the reasons why Basil didn't write his famous work on the Holy Spirit until late in his life, when his homoousian mentors had died. But there is also evidence that Basil might have thought of the Spirit as a bit lower than the Son. For example, he'll say things like the Spirit shares in divinity, but doesn't so much describe it as having full divinity. Gregory, on the other hand, loudly and proudly asserts the Spirit is homoousius with the Father and the Son from day one. And in his first sermon as a bishop, he makes sure to mention that we've got a big problem with all of these people fighting against the Spirit, and what the Church needs now are courageous truth-tellers who will affirm the full divinity of the Spirit. Hint, hint. Basil can force him to be a bishop, but Basil can't force Gregory to agree with him. Now, it is a little surprising that Gregory was so dead set against being a bishop, because some of Gregory's letters seem to betray a bit of irritation that he was not considered to be the bishop of Caesarea, the very same seat that Basil had just won. But then, when he had an opportunity to actually be a bishop, he resented it. What gives? Well, part of the answer can only be that Gregory of Nazianzus had a bit of an entitled streak. Gregory was part of the Roman aristocracy. He knew it, and he felt that the privileges it conveyed were his by right. He expected to live on his father's estate and think great thoughts without doing any paying work well into his thirties, and it is entirely possible that he thought a man of his learning and stature was entitled to the rank of bishop without the tedious obligations that comprised the work of a bishop. 
And Sassima, the town he was going to be bishop of, was not exactly a prize. To call it a dung heap would, in Gregory's mind, be an insult to dung heaps everywhere. Later in his life, he would describe the town as follows, and I quote, Utterly dreadful, pokey little hole. A paltry horse stop on the main road where it splits into three. A place wholly devoid of water, vegetation, or the company of gentlemen. All dust and noise and wagons, weepings and lamentations, magistrates, implements of torture and leg irons, a population of only foreigners and migrants. This was my church of Sassima. End quote. That comment about foreigners and migrants, by the way, is probably not a racist dig against out-of-towners. It's probably Gregory's way of saying that the only people who live in Sassima are those who are passing through it to get somewhere better. And he, being Gregory, believes he is entitled to better than Sassima. It's not one of his better characteristics, but I don't think it's possible to understand the man without it. But it's not just a matter of entitlement. Basil felt that the calling of the intellectual was in the hustle and bustle of the life of the church. Gregory, by contrast, thought that his calling was best lived out in the seclusion required to think and study and write at the deepest possible level. Now, seclusion does not mean comfort, by the way. Gregory is not expecting to eat three-course meals every supper while servants attend to the estate, Downton Abbey style. But he does not think it's possible to think and pray and write the way he wishes if he's always having to say services, do marriage counseling, distribute food to the poor, lead committee meetings, find substitutes for the parish ushers who get sick and can't come to the church on Sunday, figure out what that mysterious leak in the roof is and where it's coming from. Gregory thinks that kind of life, the life of a parish priest or a diocesan bishop, is worldly. For Gregory, it's part of what he and Basil were trying to get away from ever since their Christian student group in Athens and the nascent excitement they all shared then for some kind of ascetic lifestyle. In fact, he writes that to Basil after Basil becomes a bishop, asking him what on earth happened to that dream of theirs. Now, as a side note, from the vantage point of history, we can say this is one thing that Gregory was pretty definitively wrong about. His greatest works of oratory and his deepest theological insights were forged precisely in the crucible of public ministry and disputation that he spent his whole life trying to avoid. But he didn't know that at the time, of course. He thought Basil was just on a power trip, and it was going to cost him his chance to do the kind of intellectual work that he felt he was called to. And beyond that, Gregory just felt used by Basil. Basil was quite possibly the closest friend he had ever had, and now he was just going to order Gregory to pack up and move to Sassima without so much as a buy-your-leave? Now, Gregory's feelings of being used were not without merit, because in addition to Sassima being not exactly the kind of home Gregory had dreamt about, Basil was also dropping Gregory into the middle of an ecclesiastical war zone. You see, when Valens had divided Caesarea in two, he was not super clear on where exactly the new diocesan boundaries began and ended, and which bishops had control over which areas. Why wasn't he clear about this? Well, because he didn't care. Valens was trying to solve logistical and economic problems, and thought the bishops would figure out who ruled what on their own. The problem is that in this post-Constantine era, bishops were economic and political figures. 
they received tribute from towns under their control that they could use to fund projects and relief for the poor. Basil put Gregory in charge of Sassima because he wanted to continue receiving tithes from that region. There was another bishop in the nearby town of Limni who thought that he had the right to tribute from Sassima. So after it was announced that Gregory was taking up the post in Sassima, a team came from Basil to collect their tithe and bring it to Caesarea. And then the bishop in Lemni sent a gang of ruffians to beat up Basil's team and take the tithe to him instead, which they did. Basil wanted Gregory to get in there and convince the bishop of Lemni to abandon his claim on the town. After all, Gregory had proved he could resolve hard situations before. He'd done it in Nazianzus with his father's heresy, and then he'd done it before Basil's elevation. But Gregory was not up for a third round. What did he do instead? Well, he ran away to live with the monks. Again. And after his temper had died down, just like he did when he was made priest, he collected his thoughts and came back and began working as a bishop in Nazianzus. Not Sassima. No, no, he would just stay in Nazianzus, helping his dad run the church as a minor or a helper bishop, until those roving gangs of ruffians stopped beating people up for not supporting the Bishop of Limni. Basil sent multiple letters to Gregory saying, What is up, man? Get in there and work your magic and claim your post from that other bishop. And Gregory wrote many letters saying, in not so many words, Not my circus? Not my monkeys. Basil had forced him into this. Basil wanted the tithe, not Gregory. And if Basil would just focus on a life of quiet contemplation and prayer like Gregory was trying to, then maybe the church would be a much calmer place altogether. To which Basil probably said, well, fine. And Gregory replied, well, fine. And Basil said, who needs you in Sassima anyway? I've got lots of bishops who will actually fight for Nicene Orthodoxy and won't criticize my reticence to speak of the Spirit. And Gregory said, well, fine. Go write letters to one of them then. As you can tell, the falling out between Basil and Gregory has pretty much reached its apex by now. The two men would never fully reconcile before Basil's untimely death but they also still saw in each other an ally. And while they might not have liked each other very much, they still supported their common cause against Nicaea's opponents. They tended to show a much more united front in public, keeping their bitter disagreements private for the sake of church unity. Perhaps it takes a saint to have that kind of patience with a former friend. But anyway, things basically stayed like this until the death of Gregory's father. With that death, Gregory was now the sole remaining bishop in Nazianzus. You might think this situation would suit him just fine. He could stay in his hometown. He could live on the family estate. Without his formidable father to boss him around, he could create the seclusion he craved. He could write and fight for Nicaea, all from the comfort of his study. You might think that, but you would be very, very wrong. Shortly after his father's death, Gregory of Nazianzus gathered the clergy of his diocese. He had asked that a new bishop for Nazianzus be appointed. This request was ignored. And so he announced to his clergy that he would be leaving for an undetermined period of time. He wasn't resigning. No need to elect a new bishop since one wasn't coming anyway. But he wasn't going to be around, and they should just run things in his absence. Just, just handle it, you guys. You'll be fine. I believe in you. He would be going off where else 
but to live with a monastic community. The monks would understand him. The monks believed in the simple life of contemplation. The monks wouldn't make him do a bunch of boring administrative paperwork. The monks believed in the full divinity of the Holy Spirit like he did, and would give him moral authority to help pressure Basil into picking a side. And there Gregory would have stayed, a bishop monastic in exile, reading tomes and praying and nursing his hurt feelings about everyone's demands that he, a bishop, should find a nice church to settle down and work in. Except that a couple of years into his exile, he was to get a very interesting invitation. Gregory had relatives in the eastern capital of Constantinople, and they procured an invitation for him to come and minister in the heart of the city. This was a daunting challenge. For the last 40 years, Constantinople's religious elite had been uniformly anti-homoousian in their theology. Ever since Eusebius of Nicomedia had become Eusebius of Constantinople in the aftermath of Nicaea, the city had been passed from one anti-Nicene bishop to another anti-Nicene bishop. In fact, anti-Nicene theology was just assumed to be orthodoxy in the city. Gregory would be perceived as a radical bishop from the outlying provinces, pushing a strange new and probably heretical theology. Now, Gregory would have some backup, because Valens had just died, and the new eastern emperor was a guy named Theodosius, who happened to be very sympathetic to the Nicene cause. But Theodosius was busy running around, managing the empire, and wouldn't be in Constantinople for some time. And in that time, Gregory would be completely on his own. His opponents would give him no opportunities to speak or minister in their churches. He wouldn't even be recognized as a bishop by many of them. Gregory decided to take the offer, and immediately set off to Constantinople. Because of his family connections, he was able to obtain a small villa in one of the ritzier parts of the city. Funny how privilege works. Even when you're a bishop monk living a life of seclusion and self-denial, you're only a few conversations away from a private villa in the middle of the imperial capital. Now, Gregory turned part of this villa into a chapel, which he provocatively named the Church of the Resurrection, because from it he would begin the resurrection of Nicene Orthodoxy in the city. And so Gregory began to do the hard work of building a community of believers against fierce opposition. It would be the hardest pastoral work of his life. It would involve him in all of the difficult, nitty-gritty ministerial work and active toil that he had so far avoided in his ministry. But no more. He was a church planter now. And so he would be an active man, in the world but not of it, working hard in the councils of the church, just like his friend Basil and... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just kidding. Gregory wasn't going to do any of that. What he was going to do, though, was preach. Really often and really well. While it wouldn't build him a big church, it stayed pretty small through his entire ministry, it would give him a platform from which to proclaim his theology to a skeptical audience. He would prove to the elite of Constantinople that the orthodox position was at least intellectually respectable. Some would, of course, be utterly convinced. Others would at least be convinced to respect their opponents. Now, we'll be covering his orations in Constantinople next time. But for now, it's important to notice that this quest, quixotic as it may seem, was what would propel Gregory to the very heart of Nicaea's resolution, a resolution in which he, more than Gregory of Nyssa, more than even Basil, 
would occupy the spotlight. And what is that next stage of his life? Well, it's a very good question, and one we are going to answer later. Because that stage of Gregory's life is so intimately tied to the larger story that I want to tell it then, as we get the history of Nicaea moving again, and I don't want to repeat myself. Plus, this episode is already too long anyway. I, I mean, have you seen the timestamp that we're on? Yeesh! Ugh. So, with that, we're going to end here, leaving Gregory's life to the side. And next time, we'll be focusing on the letters that were at the heart of that life. The letters he formed so eloquently into the finely crafted arguments that carved out the final stretch of the pavement that constitute the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com. Uh.